0: My name is Joshua Gilliland, and I'm one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. With me this evening to discuss and or episode seven, the announcement, is Jordan Hooper, Christine Peake, Stephen Tollefield, Thomas Harper, and Bethany Blanton. First, I want to thank Christine Peake for moderating last week while I was recovering, and she did a fantastic job. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and do so. Anywho, let's jump into the announcement, which has political intrigue and a good old-fashioned spy story, and what I love most of all, the first trial courtroom scene we've seen in live-action Star Wars. So our first topic tonight, Professor Stephen Tollefield brought it together, and can you help us understand the many crimes of Mothma Manor?
1: I was torn between Mothma Manor and Maison de Mothma, (laughs) because both of them (laughs) sound like equally euphonious. Um, But yeah, I love that party scene. It was so beautifully shot. And it's everything I wanted in a refined, sophisticated spy Drama. It was really, really cool. And I like the character of Tay. He's really intriguing. He's a banker, but he's kind of a revolutionary, which is kind of an interesting combination. Um, So there's a whole um, conversation that he has with uh, Mon, and she's speaking in kind of code. She's trying to figure out if she can trust him. Um, And I'm certainly not an expert in criminal law, but I'm hoping maybe Jordan or Thomas or one of the other panelists who knows more about criminal law can help me out. But it just struck me that when she's asking, for him to do something that maybe he isn't otherwise unable to do except as a favor to access her family accounts. Um, She seems to be doing that to be able to fund the rebel um, activities, which strikes me as a solicitation crime, which we think of as an inchoate crime, which is a crime that doesn't necessarily have an act other than kind of a plotting or the agreement or the solicitation of the crime. Um, and when you think of solicitation, it often comes up in sort of entrapment situations where a police officer is trying to get a person to agree to do a crime in order to arrest them. But this struck me as um, I don't, I, I think that um, Mon has certainly committed this crime if she is asking Tay to do something that he wouldn't otherwise be able to do to fund another crime. Um, so that was the first one. But then the other one was that it struck me that there is a burgeoning conspiracy between them um, and, and that uh, Mon is taking steps to bring, as she said in the previous episode, bring Tay into the fold. Um, and so I'm wondering if anyone had any thoughts about when that line is going to be crossed when she has so far not told him what the crime is and the essence of a conspiracy is an agreement to do something illegal plus an overt act. And so I'm wondering at what point Tay will be guilty of being in the conspiracy if he's never quite told what he what the money is going to. Does he need to know that in order to be a part
2: of the conspiracy? I I think there's enough subtext there to to get some traction. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're obviously talking in heavy code. They talk of this establishment of a new nonprofit and presumably a vehicle to, to, to move the funding. I don't know that you have the overt act that's necessary yet, just by the sit down. But the moment that she establishes this, or because there seems to be at least a tacit agreement that he's going to be appointed to the board, and otherwise. In other words that's the that, that's the vessel that he can use or that certainly he accepts an appointment I think you're you're game on at that
1: point yeah because it strikes me that she's already she already acknowledges that she's engaged in some sort of criminal activity because she says that present tense they won't see what I'm really doing present tense um so it's I I wonder like it once he realizes or maybe it's enough that he knows that what she. She's unable to say it's enough of an indication that it's criminal in nature that maybe that's enough for him to be um to know that he's part of a con- criminal conspiracy. I, don't
3: know. I think if uh, I were his attorney, I would certainly argue that he doesn't know. Okay. Um, you do have to like be a willing part of this conspiracy, uh, right? You know, I guess for a an example, if there's a plan to commit a bank robbery and you're the car salesman who sells them the getaway car and they just show up and say, Hey, I need this car. I've got money. I will buy a car. You are not part of you. The car salesman are not part of the conspiracy for selling them a car. Now, if they say, Hey, I'm going to go rob a bank. I really need this car. I'll pay you later with the money I steal from the bank. uh, Less so then. Uh, So it It depends on what they can show that Tay should, knew, or I suppose should have known. Because he can't just come in and say, oh, I didn't know. And Right. like, well... what
1: Could he be an accessory of something if he sort of knew that something was unlawful and he somehow provided them with the tools or the funding to do the crime even if he didn't, wasn't quite Well, So like in your example or hypothetical, the car sales, if this, they walked into the car sales and ship and said, we need a car that's really fast and that can evade police officers, wink, can you do you have anything that you can tell us? At that point, does the, is the car salesman on the hook for somehow furthering the, the criminal conspiracy, even if he doesn't quite know or he, she doesn't quite know what's going on? Probably. Well, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: I think we should look at the facts of what he said. It, it, that is what is exchanged. Because the first thing he mentions is his politics being strong for her or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then she ends the conversation with, my politics might be too strong for you. So that could be the wink and the nod for what she's up to while still building in plausible deniability, because strong politics could be, I'm going to help the people who are getting crushed. Yeah. You know, it could be, I'm going to open hospitals. You know, he doesn't know, but he, it's kind of clear that I need you to be my money man and possibly next husband. Let's, let's be honest here where that this could. Could have a, a another meeting uh, later on. Yeah, with, with, you
2: know, with a jawline like Tay's, you know, oh. it's it's only an upgrade from Karen. And the hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <It's> silvery. Silver <laughs> so fox. Now I so there's a key moment in that conversation sort of early on. He's trying to wave her off and because he knows the road that he's going that she's going down. And he says something to the effect of, you know, my my involvement or my interest have gone beyond just like mere disagreement, right? The implication is that he is now directly or or like maybe a degree or two off of uh, direct participation in an active movement against the empire. And that's where she pivots and sort of raises the stakes and, and matches him. And it's only after he says that, that seems to be the moment that she's waiting for to confirm that she can tell him because she says, "Hey, I wasn't sure if you would chill up or if I could tell you," and uh, that's the confirmation because then uh, she sort of carries back to him, and uh, they have the rest of the conversation that we've described. So uh, the, the they're still just talking at this point, um, I, I, but but I think the predicate pieces are in place. Um, you know, the, the uh, you can only be so crafty when when it comes to the uh, trying to disguise your your knowledge of things. And I think that the writing is very clearly on the wall.
4: Here. I think that it would take more time to build up a case because yeah. I mean, there, there is definitely a lot of winking and nodding going on, but nothing that has been stated kind of like Josh was saying, nothing that has been stated so far is actually illegal or seems to be um, anti-Imperial beyond the nuisance causing of uh, I'm gonna throw money maybe where the Empire doesn't want that money but the Empire doesn't want her like a lot of different things so it's I, I think it'll be interesting to see over time um, what pieces of the puzzle fall into place that can lead to all of them being declared as rebels essentially
5: Yeah, I, I agree with, um, with Bethany. I think there's probably not enough there yet. Um, this was one of the parts of the episode that I enjoyed the most, the, the masterful way that Mon Mothma handles her, this party. She keeps an eye on, yet manages to stay a safe distance from the husband who isn't to be trusted. Um, and at the same time, her conversation with Tay, she gets him to show his cards a little bit before she shows any cards. Um, So I think, I think I agree with the the rest of the comments that um, it's not the dancing around the edges, but it's not quite enough yet to show that Tay is definitely aware that he's being pulled into something that is going to amount to criminal activity. Uh,
4: Even if we think back to uh, A New Hope, when Princess Leia is captured, she maintains that she's simply on peacekeeping missions uh, and... Darth Vader is, you know, waving a finger in her face, yelling that she's a spy for the Rebel Alliance. Uh, so,
0: now, no, granted, after Rogue One, that is now the funniest scene in all of Star Wars because, from literally what just happened a couple hours earlier, for her to say that is bold. <laughs> so, very bold.
4: Really is. But I wouldn't be surprised if she learned it in part from Mon Mothma, which. I'm still hoping we'll see something from the series. <laughs> we'll see.
0: It's hope springs eternal. They, I mean, this show could go either way with, we will have no cameos from any other significant player. And it's just going to stand on its own or it's going to get peppered with here's Hera walking by. So we'll see what the, what the ultimate uh, reveal is, but. I I wouldn't be surprised if it can go either way. Now, Thomas, pardon me, you raised the issue of Mon material support to terrorists. Take it away, my friend. You are on mute, still on mute, still
2: on mute. Thank you. The the post 9-11 DOJ attorneys would be sort of licking their chops at a scene like this because this sort of had all the the elements of a material support case uh, in, in in its infancy perhaps. Uh, but if you're unfamiliar, so th- these um, these this this body of statutes found in it's the, the prime one is 18 U S C 2339. Uh, these statutes mostly stood up in the eh, like mid to late 90s in response to some of the terror attacks that you have there, they got really thrown into the spotlight post 9-11 as as the U.S. pursued uh, different avenues uh, of of support for terrorist organizations overseas. And uh, immediately after 9-11, and and the thing that sort of ties in here to Andor is uh, that that there was a a push to, to use these statutes in this criminal architecture, against organizations, against large charities, they, they found uh, U.S. officials found that uh, organizations like the um, Benevolence International Foundation, or the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development, or the Islamic American Relief Agency, these these organizations were being used, you know, partially in some way for, for sort of uh, some charitable acts, but largely they were being used to funnel uh, money to terrorist organizations. And um, so they brought actions using this framework, a, a number of them, and that, that was sort of a turn in, in uh, how the criminal law had, had been employed up to that point. Um, and the, the goal was to attack sort of the, the foundation of uh, some of these organizations. They can't exist without funding. There was a big push they, they found in intelligence to, to uh, keep the flow of money and arms and all the other things that you need to operate alive, and that's what we see Mon Mothma doing here, right? She's she's looking to set up a uh, a shell organization to funnel money. It's clear that she's already used uh, you know perhaps extensively her own the family's own money to do this as a way of of disguising what she's doing rather than try to push for other you know bizarre funding sources uh, through the, through Senate channels. Um, and now she needs a vehicle to, to sort of hide it. And uh, the, the statute really kind of ramps up. So the the idea is that uh, support as it's defined in 2339 is broad. It can if you look at the list, it is just about anything. Um, religious materials are mentioned, but but money is a key player there. And money has been at the center of just hundreds of DOJ prosecutions, particularly over the last 25 years. And um, some of the statutes, so the statute has a few sections, but 2339B, Bravo, uh, in particular, is uh, the the statute or the the arm of the statute that's used to go after uh, financing of designated terrorist foreign organizations, or or yeah, designated foreign terrorist organizations, FTOs. Um, The key difference here, and the, the, uh, the, the interesting piece when you look at where the empire is with the rebellion at this point. There's no public acknowledgement that a re- rebellion exists. They haven't designated sort of a, a a larger rebel alliance as a terrorist group. In fact, there's an active push to sort of, um, I would think like officially uh, suppress this sort of thing. We see a little bit of Holonet footage that describes it as a terrorist attack. Um, but I think there's a real, uh, angst against or an unwillingness on maybe a, a naivety in calling what's happening some sort of organized movement. In fact, Dejra seems to be the only one that, that really is seeing these pieces put together. And so I don't know that if this statute existed in, in the Star Wars universe that you would have that FTO book, because there's got to be, at least for that portion of the statute, a designation. Um, So in any event, the, I I think Mon Mothma is walking herself right into a financing charge and it doesn't, the the statute doesn't require, um, uh, you know, discrete knowledge of the intricate plans that the mens rea, or the mental requirement, the intent requirement of the crime pertains to your, your knowledge that that money is intended to fuel this type of activity. I think Mon Mothma would. Her, her defense would probably hinge on uh, her interest in non-violent solutions. And I think we've seen some, some predicate pieces that that, that defense has some legs as uh, she clearly did not condone uh, the action that, that Luthen set in motion on Aldani. She was just blown away that, that he'd actually greenlit it and, and that it happened. Um, and there's that underlying tension between her sort of apparent desire to, to, resist the empire but look for ways that aren't uh, you know done at the end of a blaster barrel. So it's it's a significant statute in terms of penalties. It, it the max sentence is 15 years, but if someone dies in connection with the activity that you're financing, it's a life sentence potentially. And you know if the, the empire were looking at the Aldani operation, clearly individuals died. I mean this would be significant criminal exposure for bond
0: I Good. would. Oh, go sorry, Christy. No, you please go on.
5: I was going to say just to add to what Thomas said, um, as regards Mon Motma's uh, charitable outreach program that she wants to form, another area of law that she might be concerned about. Um, and this bleeds into our next topic a little bit. Um, but the, the Patriot Act made it um, easier to seize assets. So it added to US forfeiture law. Um, specifically to provide for seizure of um, foreign and domestic assets from any group or individual that's engaged in planning or perpetrating acts of terrorism against the U.S. or U.S. citizens on residence or their property. And it um, it also provided that assets can be seized seized if they've been acquired or maintained with intent or purpose of supporting, planning, conducting, or concealing acts of terrorism, or if they're derived from involved in, used, or intended to be used to commit um, any such act of terrorism. And so when we think about the proceeds of the Aldani heist um, and Mon Mothma's apparent non-knowledge of of that, um, that's something she would certainly want to point to, and you can understand why she's so upset. Um, with Luthien, um for engaging in that, and not just for reasons of wanting to save herself, but for the other consequences that it has also. Um, the fact that as a result of this, the empire is gonna tighten its fist and people are going to suffer. But um, but that's something that she might think about. It's not really clear that the the, the P.O.R.D. or the other measures that are specifically touched on in this episode, would cover something like asset forfeiture, but it sounds like in the future, it's really likely there could be increased scrutiny of charitable organizations. Um, And if the purpose of the organization is to hold or distribute assets with the intent that they support the rebellions, activity is probably not gonna be too long before the empire adopts something similar, um, some similar type of asset forfeiture provision.
0: So there's a lot to unpack and the Patriot Act is a nice comparison point, even though it's hard to compare a large robbery to a massive terrorist attack that kills thousands. So the fact that the empire is coming down as heavily as they are with the public order resentencing directive Directive poured, uh, which are... Uh, recurring character first seen in A New Hope and then a a lot in Clone Wars and then just a hint of him in Rebels uh, is any criminal act with even indirect effect on the empire will henceforth be branded a class one offense. They are seeking a tribute tax five times the amount stolen from uh, Aldani or any sector harboring partisan activity and the use of any local custom festival or tradition as cover for rebel activity will trigger permanent revocation of Imperial Tolerance. Now, Imperial Tolerance seems to be a weird name since the Imperials were planning to shut down Observing the Eye, Uh, but there's a lot of of shenanigans uh, going on uh, as well. And to bring in the Patriot Act, it's big. We're not going to cover every part of it, but uh the United States passed this very quickly after nine eleven and to be fair, issues of you know, uh, different government agencies not communicating to each other is part of the reason why the nine eleven terrorists were successful. FBI didn't talk to CIA. Things like that that could have been helpful uh, didn't happen, so there needed to be some corrective action to shore up uh, security. Then there's the unpleasant stuff that's in there that uh, you know deals with FISA courts and uh, metadata uh, uh, surveillance and getting search warrants covering two million people that bother anyone who cares about civil liberties. So the act was passed to strengthen U.S. US measures to prevent, detect, and prosecute uh, international money laundering and financing of terrorism. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other elements built into this as well that deal with wiretapping and the age-old issue of follow the money. And uh, there's also issues with uh, immigration that are built in there as well. I recognize several of us here have actually dealt with this in practice. So who wants to take a swing at comparing the two? So. Bueller, come on. Oh, I, Christine, you're smiling. Come on, take a swing at it.
5: There's so much here, Josh, it's hard to know where to start. I keep going back and forth and thinking, well, I don't know, it could be here. It could be there. So one thing I'm just gonna start at a place where, you know, I I think it makes sense to start and then we'll see where this takes us. So one thing that I noticed about the various measures that the empire is implementing is that they're they're not all legislative in nature. It actually sounds like the poured is more in the nature of an executive order or a directive. Um, And in that sense might actually be more similar to something like the Homeland Security presidential directives that followed the um, 9-11 attacks. And to give an example of one of those, um, uh, so Homeland Security Presidential Directive 6 or HSPD 6 dealt with the topic of integration and use of screening information. Um, And it, it stated that to protect against terrorism, it is the policy of the United States to one develop integrate and maintain thorough accurate and current information about individuals known or appropriately suspected to be or have been engaged in conduct. Constituting in preparation for an aid of or related to terrorism terrorist information and two, use that information as appropriate and to the full extent permitted by law to support. A, federal, state, local, territorial, tribal, foreign government, and private sector screening processes, and B, diplomatic, foreign government, and private sector screening, sorry, diplomatic, military, intelligence, law enforcement, immigration, visa, and protective processes. Um, And so based on this, Directive and an accompanying memorandum of understanding the terrorist screening center, which is a multi-agency unit that's housed within the FBI was created to maintain the terrorist screening database, which is a consolidated central repository for records concerning allegations of suspected terrorism. And then portions of the TSDB are exported to various data systems in federal agencies that perform screening activities like background checks or reviewing um, passport and visa applications um, encounters with travels at, travelers at the border and probably more well-known air passenger screening. And so here um, the empire seems to be mixing it up too with some legislative measures that may have been rubber stamped by the Senate and also executive orders and directives that don't necessarily have the imprimatur of the legislative body, um, but that also go to reorganize um, or, or reestablish security measures following this attack. Um, and so, for example, there's also the Imperial Security Act, um, which we learn um, that, that Supervisor Dendremere is able to get records of the missing equipment across multiple sectors um, notwithstanding the existence of the sector protocols or the ISB code of conduct that would otherwise apparently limit her ability to get that information. She would otherwise have to file a request, and she has done that, and it's already been denied. And so her comment on that is, you know, systems either change or die. Um, and I think, you know, in in real life, during the years following um, the Patriot attack, you saw um, not just the Patriot Act, but other things, um, other types of legislation and other executive orders and directives that, that worked to reorganize how we deal um, with intelligence information. The Patriot Act also contained um, provisions that concerned how intelligence information is shared. And then there were subsequent pieces of legislation that went, f- went further and changed that. So it was just sort of this evolving um, series of acts um, that that changed how we dealt with security. And that seems to be um, just in a general sense, what's happening here as well.
2: It's interesting you- that the, the A, the, this goes to the broader Star Wars politics. The emperor doesn't seem to have executive authority to, at least to, there doesn't seem to be a mechanism by which he can simply uh, issue something akin to executive orders, but that's where the rubber stamp comes into play. You know when Colonel Yularen was awesome to see him on screen sort of, again, uh, outside of his animated appearance and his very brief appearance at a new hope. Um, you know, there, there's no shred of doubt in his statement that the emperor is going to introduce a set of uh, laws and uh, legislation and amendments to, to affect or free their hands. I think he, he says in all manners of searches, seizures, uh, et cetera. But, there's still this sort of element that Dedra picks up on that they're not really responding with any sort of directed purpose to what's happening. You get this sledgehammer effect with Ford, which really just deals with criminal penalties and maybe the the deterrent effect that the Empire thinks that those have. And then the ISB seemingly gets reshuffled and sort of this, uh, I would liken it to to post-9-11 like resource surge where they can tap into military assets. You know, Lauren says you'll, you'll have no problem accessing Navy or, or Army uh, assets after this point. And, and I think to, to somebody like Dedra, uh, she looks at that and says, this is just, you know, a wild shotgun blast in response to a series of really well planned and thought out uh, operations by the rebellion none of which is going to change anything. If we're, if we're gaining more intelligence and gathering more stuff, but we're not seeing the pattern, what good is that doing? And so I think you see Dedra even before all this stuff that Lauren is talking about goes into place, she's demonstrating that the, 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 the kernels are out there. She, you, the, the, they have to adapt and know where to see them and where to see those, those connections.
0: So, let's hear from our intelligence officer because you know Bethany, did this speak to you? I mean, did you want to cosplay Deidre at this point? like, what was your reaction to see- oh
4: man it's i mean it's it's very interesting, and I think Christine did touch a bit on this, uh, but there are there are circumstances in which um either at a high level of command decision or going through the right approval authorities, uh, we can get approval within the community to share information more broadly than we could normally. Uh, so this, this is one of those things where uh, like post 9 and this is kind of the part that Christine talked about, uh, but this prior to the creation of the uh, ODNI and Homeland Security, you a lot of intelligence organizations didn't necessarily have the staffing to, uh, or the directives to share intelligence. Uh, and you do want to be careful about how you share intelligence and with whom, because you don't want to risk your sources. You don't want to risk your technology. You really don't want to risk your the human lives that are in the field collecting information about bad people trying to do bad things. Um, simplistically putting it. But then there are times when you need that intelligence to act like Dedra knows that she can, she can sense that there's something there. She can sense that there's a pattern. And so she's taking risk and acting boldly uh, by accessing data in a, in a questionable way, but in a way that from her uh, superior's perspective is warranted given the situation. And so that that's very interesting because if if I felt as though there were a strong need to share intelligence with a certain organization uh or a partner nation, I wouldn't do like Dedra did. I would uh go up chains of command specifically established and say, "Hey, we need to share this immediately. Here's why um And we can get approval to do that really quickly if we need to. Uh, And so while the protection of information is important, 9-11 taught basically the community and the world that the sharing and the connecting of the dots has to happen as well. And there, there have to be ways of sharing intelligence. Like let's say you have information and you're working with seven different partner nations in a deployed environment. You have to be able to share that information if it's going to save lives. Uh, so it's very interesting to see that uh, Dedra is driven to figure out who these bad guys are. She's driven to uh, basically do whatever she can to stop probably from what her perspective are the bad guys or the terrorists in this case, um, and so to me, like this episode was fascinating. This whole series is fascinating because you see the this, this slow march of the empire into something where, like Christine was pointing out, this is not necessarily all legislative, it's executive. And at what point do more and more of these decisions lead into this gradual push into uh, basically what we see in the original trilogy, a martial law when they're talking about, oh, we've done away with the Senate and the governors and all of the legislative body, who needs the legislative branch? Because, you know, martial law, executive branch, all the power. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm too excited about it, but I just love this series. You,
2: you need to, Bethany, find a time in your career to use the phrase uh, ventilated in public. <laughs> to describe <laughs> uh, somebody having their credibility question. But there's this like sad parallel between Dedra and Cyril where they're yeah. both bucking rules in the system and these sort of pre-baked um, architecture that they operate within for the same sort of for purpose. And Cyril ends up eating galactic fruity pebbles with his mom and Dedra gets kind of tacitly promoted and gets another sector to represent so maybe cyril just needs to find a new
5: employer
0: i mean she does have a big target on her back when your boss warns you to watch her back that's not good that said the entire ex public exchange brilliant filmmaking and his socratic questioning of her for like thesis and like just looking a little as exasperated because everyone else he just smacks down. With her, it's full engagement and asking probing questions, and she's ready to to rock. So very it was very well done. Uh, but the civil rights issues that are gonna follow from it are pretty terrifying. So there's yeah.
1: from the criminal lot. procedure that whole phrase about even indirect effect on the empire like how chilling is that like that's and we see that sort of at the end of the episode too, that when there's a sort of draconian and disproportionate uh, consequences for very minor crimes and what couldn't have an indirect effect on the empire like littering uh, some some prosecutor could gin up some sort of connection to you know the demoralizing of imperial citizens by a piece of paper on the ground is now a class one felony um, that's that's remarkably uh chilling um, and certainly something that when you see yeah. sort of very crime and punishment focused societies' um, is very disturbing
4: and it's 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 not appropriate to have Dedra be the one to do this like. He is setting her up to have a target on her back and whether she succeeds or fails, either he reaps the benefits or she reaps the failure basically is, is how he's setting it up to be. Um, Whereas like post nine 11, the um, I'm going to read it to make sure I don't get it wrong, but the, in 2004, the intelligence and reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004 created the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, so the ODNI that I mentioned, uh, and that was created to coordinate with the FBI, the CIA, and 14 other intelligence agencies, and it also established the National Counterterrorism Center, and that was to bring all threats to Americans at home and abroad together to be able to analyze as opposed to The FBI would look at domestic threats. The CIA would look at threats abroad. Uh, And and you had all of these different agencies that had their specific roles, but no overarching agency to coordinate. So it's it's interesting to see the imperial structure is taking advantage of these attacks to gain more power and to uh enact more executive level powers or rubber stamp legislative powers but they're not actually doing anything to like force the system to change which is what the ISB should be doing at this point they should be realizing oh wow we've split everything to sectors and we're not communicating and we're not noticing the patterns like this this is directly in line with Uh, what happened with the 9-11 Intel that was split up into all of these different pieces. Um, And no one connected the dots because there was no one bringing those sectors of intelligence together. Um, But we see ISB personnel using this for their own personal gain or for experimentation and not for reforming the system.
0: I want to, we've been picking on 9-11 because, well, it's hard to miss. But the other one that's hard to miss is Pearl Harbor. And, you know, in November, November 24th, 1941, there was a war warning memo that went out to uh, the Pacific commanders because we did have intel and we were, we had cracked the Japanese code and we had intel that something was coming. And General Short, who was in charge of the Army and the Army Air Corps, feared sabotage. So he had all of the airplanes move together into tight little clusters that would be really easy to bomb because uh, he thought sabotage was the effect. Uh, Admiral Kimmel, on the other hand, thought, we're in Pearl Harbor. It's absolutely pretty here and did nothing. So he misread it entirely as well because he thought the attack was going to be someplace else like the Philippines or wake any other place and then when you you know fast forward within 10 days and you're getting closer to the attack we had people in Washington DC trying to figure out what messages were going to the Japanese embassy for them to be able to decipher it and if they had figured it out sooner they could have made a phone call. But the entire idea of communicating the threat to the local commanders uh, ran late. So there's there's no shortage of intelligence failures to show what's happening. On the flip side, this was a bank robbery at best. So leveling the type of reforms and heavy-handed uh, responses to a bank robbery as opposed to you know, like they didn't blow up a building. The Imperial fleet didn't take a giant hit. So the uh, the response is definitely not proportional to what's happened. Uh, on the flip side, Deidre does have a lot of good points with realizing that this is organized because it looks disorganized. So uh, things there to, to analyze. But we now get to the, part of the story that looks a lot like Miami Vice. For those of us old enough to remember Miami Vice, where we have uh, Andor hanging out in the worst place possible, Namunas, I believe is how it's pronounced. So if I were him, I would lay low. And that's Tatooine or Dagobah type of place to go to. Going to Miami, South Beach, Las Vegas, seems like a bad plan to hide. Elko, Nevada, seems like a better plan to hide with. I'm going to be in this little small town where nobody's around and it's just going to be really chill out here. Perhaps Provo, Utah, something off the grid. But no, he goes to a vacation spot, hooks up with a lady, and uh, gets arrested doing a grocery run for the woman. All of this, is, is she worth it? I mean, is, is this a girlfriend? Is this a someone from the local brothel? Nothing about this seems like a good idea. And he gets shook down because some guys run by him and we have local law enforcement doing their thing. Jordan, as the defense attorney, just some reactions.
3: <laughs> so, first of all, I'm not sure I agree with you about where he chooses to hide. I, he's got a ton of money. He can't actually work because I'm sure his ID is flagged. If he shows up in a small town and just says, Hey, I have a ton of money and I'm not working and I'm here and I'm just going to kind of hang out and keep to myself, that's noticeable. And people are going to comment on that if he shows up in a vacation resort and says, "Hey, I'm here on vacation, and I'm super rich, and nobody look into my background because nobody cares. That's not really worthy of comment, but you know that issue aside uh his arrest is pretty atrocious and uh, you know I'd like to say nothing like that would ever happen in our our place but i can't um it immediately reminded me of the whole uh controversy with new york's uh, stop and frisk law that uh is still going on i think uh but just to kind of sum up the new york law allowed police officers to stop people and search them based on this kind of nebulous do i think they look like they're doing something funny standard uh which is not the standard but it resulted in a ton of new yorkers getting harassed by law enforcement i will use the term harassed and i will stick to it and i mean it Uh, but i suppose it could be characterized in a different way interestingly the uh new york's aclu did a study and found out about 90 percent of the people that the new york police stop under the stop and frisk laws because I suppose one of the good things about it is it does require them to document what they're doing, but about 90% of them were totally, completely, 100% innocent of absolutely anything. So if your policy has a 10% success rate, maybe rethink it. Regardless, and perhaps aside, um, in order to stop someone, you need at least reasonable suspicion that either a crime has been committed or is about to be committed. And these guys know that Cassian is walking on a beach and that somebody else ran by him. They think he looks funny. They think he looks suspicious. We can, I suppose, debate about that, but none of those are specific reasons why they have to stop, why they want to stop him. And they do Actually, you have to have specific and articulable reasons why they think he's involved in some criminal activity, not, you know, you're in a weird area and you look funny. Um, Josh posted a bunch of statistics in the chat. I don't know. I'll yield to him on those.
0: So that's from one of the cases that struck down a stop and frisk. I believe it was Judge Shinlin who made lots of uh, waves in the e discovery world and has now since retired. But this is from Floyd v. City of New York, 959FSUP2, F uh, or second 540. And the New York Police City Police Department made 4.4 4 million stops between January 2004 and June 2012. Over 80% of the 4.4 uh, 4 million stops were of African Americans or Hispanics. Requirements for a stop Two such limits are paramount here. First, that all stops be based on a reasonable suspicion as defined by the U.S. Supreme Court. And second, that stops be conducted in a racially neutral manner. 52% of all stops were followed by a protective frisk for weapons. A weapon was found after 1.5% of these frisks. In other words, uh, 98.5% of the 2.3 million frisks, no weapons were found. Weapons were seized in 1% of the stops of African-Americans, 1.1% of the stops of Hispanics, and 1.4% of the stops of whites. And they they did find a racial uh, animus uh, with the application of the law. Uh, the Onion did a hysterical parody of this horrible, horrible practice. Called the New York stop and kiss policy, and the line was, uh, "You don't see them stopping and kissing any white ladies." And um, so, again, if you need a laugh after something horrible. Watch that.
2: The so the Jordan, you, you characterize the the stop here in on the analyst by the the short trooper is pretty weak. I think I think NYPD would would step off on it as fully meeting its uh, its requirements. Uh, well, of
3: course they would, but it. that doesn't make them right. <laughs> no, I know that,
2: but but it, it's important for for folks to understand. So reasonable suspicion sits below probable cause. Probable cause is what you need for an arrest, a search. It's it's probably a term that that most folks are at least at like, tangentially familiar with reasonable suspicion is is something that's more than just a hunch but it's kind of like a cousin to that sort of feeling but it's got to still be based on something tangible there's the, the language is specific and articulable facts there's a case uh, Josh you sort of alluded to it Terry versus Ohio is is the Supreme Court case that that's sort of seminal on this piece and uh, sort of establishes that a uh, a brief, Detainment such as uh the one in that case or perhaps if facts were different um, and/or's uh, brief stop is okay with within certain bounds now uh, a a law enforcement officer or police or otherwise can it has to have those specific facts can can combine those with rational inferences from those facts and um that all has to relate to that specific individual, not just a general feeling based on facts in the air. So you look at the shore trooper and what Cassian is doing, there's been some kind of criminal activity, I don't know, a robbery. There are a number of folks that run by Cassian on these uh, steps, and then pass the entrance to this this grocery store. He is sort of lagging behind that group. It seems like a couple, the, the group clearly split a couple go off and they're they're captured by that KX security droid that is absolutely terrifying and Cassian is just short, sort of strolling out, so I think if you were the short trooper if if you were going to make an argument that you had reasonable suspicion, it would be that that he came kind of close in time to this group. He was generally around the same age i don't know if that like he seemed to be uh of the same cut, so to speak, is is uh, you know, the other folks that were arrested. Um, he's sweating on a beach planet, no less. But he points out that he's sweating and he's looking around suspicious. Like, he, those are the two things uh, that, that the short trooper articulates. And that's not a lot. That's not a lot at all, <laughs> at all. Um, not to mention, I mean, Cassian is, is pretty articulate in his defense, despite sort of the alarming nature of everything particularly considering his own circumstances but he's like hey it's hot out here just go to the grocery store it is right there look at the proximity that that i am to my destination um but the short trooper is not having any of that and immediately causing that that droid assistance to to detain him but even if we assume that the short trooper is right which i don't think it rises to that level of reasonable suspicion. It's a, it's a brief detention, right? It's enough to, to sort of work things out, to maybe do a, a pat down, to search for weapons, whatever the case may be. It does not equate to call in your big six foot eight uh, droid and choke slam the guy and then bring him before court. Reasonable suspicion is not enough for an arrest. It's not enough for a prosecution. It is very, very limited. The Empire just has a clearly more expensive use of it.
0: Well, you would need a good analysis. Yeah, go on, Trude.
2: Oh, I was
3: just gonna fill in in order to you can stop him briefly, but in order to like frisk him and search him, you need some other reason okay, to yeah. do that. Uh you know, if he looks like he's carrying a weapon, if there's a suspicious bulge in his jacket or something like that. Or if he's particularly fighty and threatening to the officer, they can they can search him on those bases, but He's just kind of standing there going, look, I'm not involved with these guys. I got nothing is probably not enough to search him, even if it's enough to stop him. I don't think it is. There's definitely no
4: like reading of rights or anything either.
3: No, No. No, I from the courtroom scene, I'm fairly comfortable that the idea of uh, Miranda is not um, an imperial concept. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Bill of Rights period,
3: pretty much.
4: At least not at this point. (laughs) Started with emergency powers, huh? And stayed there. Uh, Christine, anything to add? Um, No,
5: I I agree. Not too much. I I agree with the analysis. I think if you were to compare this to the facts in Terry versus Ohio, which is the seminal case that we've been talking about, they're just they're wildly different. In Terry, you had the officer testifying that he saw these two guys, and he saw one of them leave and walk down past some stores, then pause, look in the store window, then walk a little bit further, turn around, walk back to the corner, look again in the same store window, then goes back to the the second guy, and they talk, and then the second guy goes through those same series of motions, and they repeat this alternately five or six times, um, and so based on that, the same two people walking back and forth, um, you know, that's a, that's a wildly different set of facts um, than what you see with Cassian who, you know, maybe he runs up a flight of stairs, but it's really doubtful that the short trooper who stops him even sees that because it's quite a, a while before he encounters that particular short trooper. He kind of walks past some other things. He sees some droids flying past. Um, so, It's really difficult to understand what was the basis for the stop. Anyways, you're left to wonder, is there something off screen that I missed that made the shore trooper think that he was somehow involved with these people who just ran past him?
4: Maybe this is so standard at this point in this particular location. The reason why we don't, because normally in a situation like that, there are basically Troopers chasing civilians of some kind or dissenters of some kind, and normally people would be like staring, sitting up and like what's going on, like standing, looking, you know, the whole rubbernecking thing. And there's there's definitely glances and a little bit of like surreptitious staring, but Cassian is the only one doing what would be a normal human response. I wonder if there's been so many arrests like this that the locals all know just like don't don't pay attention like maybe glance but don't don't stand up don't look don't follow don't like try and figure out what's going on because you will draw attention Um, because Cassian's the only one kind of behaving like that and definitely not saying that what the Imperials are doing is is right but he he is standing out so I wonder if if this is the modus operandi for this unit in this location.
0: Well, it sucks the fun out of it, definitely, if you're getting people arrested like that and you get extreme jail sentences. But before we get there, let's talk about excessive force, because that droid assistance holds him by his neck with him being two feet off the ground. Not comfortable. And one could argue that the command for like hold him was the reason why Cassian was being held off the ground opposed to keep an eye on him, make sure he doesn't leave anything that a droid with a simple intelligence level would not try to literally do. Who wants to jump in on what do we got here? Like, is this this excessive force?
3: I think before we get to that specifically, we also need to acknowledge that at this point, Cassian is no longer looking at what the the Terry stop was, the kind of brief detention. He's full on, full blown under arrest at this point. He is not free to leave uh, in our system. That would take a uh, bump up. So what Thomas was talking about, about reasonable suspicion and the bump up to probable cause that would take you know that uh to arrest somebody well yeah little things like evidence Um, (laughs) and it would also require and trigger the officer to have to read you your your rights the right to remain silent the right to have an attorney appointed to you if you can't afford or the right to have an attorney present at all stages and if you can't afford an attorney the right to have an attorney appointed for you uh miranda rights and clearly none of that happens and so here yeah, we are Cass, with the droid Cassian
4: seems confused even and and slowly more and more horrified because he doesn't seem to realize he's he has been arrested so
3: yeah to your point and i don't think they even tell him you're under arrest i think they just call for the droid and say hold him here
0: Yeah, Sorry. we call it not good. Like this is how revolutions are born <laughs> because you have a very oppressive society uh, that's making life unpleasant.
2: Yeah. The, the more the you tighten is, your grip. Yeah, that that's that, I feel like the writers had that like painted in large, that quote painted in large letters on the I never got to it. But the I don't know about you guys, watching that droid walk up the stairs and come into view was just terrifying. There's a moment where you're like, K2, and then you're like, not K2. <laughs> and you realize that this is like the soulless sort of killing machine that the Empire has, has uh, brought into service in a law enforcement capacity, at least here. And if you played the, the Fallen Order, uh, Jedi Fallen Order video game, you know how, just how terrifying uh those things can be but it it's interesting in that they've they've sort of outsourced this uh very important capability to a fully autonomous robot right they this robot isn't purely just executing uh commands that are inputted by a human pilot this isn't like a traditional drone this is a fully autonomous decision making thing and you see almost immediately the, the uh, pitfalls of a system like that where the droid misinterprets what is being said in the almost chokes Cassian out. You're just like the one word hang um, almost gets Cassian killed. And this isn't like a pure sort of law of war issue, but it, it sort of uh, goes to, to the use of these, these types of machines uh, in general, but, The the traditional uh, machinery that we're used to has a a man in the loop is the phrase, a person that's decision-making and can intervene. They may operate uh, autonomously to a degree, but at the end of the day, a person is there to execute or override critical functions. And that's not the way these KX series security droids operate. And it's just the way the voice is is modulated, it, it sounds like a really like the sort of simplistic programming that you saw out of the B2, like the super battle droids in Clone Wars where they're just big, dumb brutes that are there to kill. Except you've taken that, that architecture and you're like, go enforce the law now. Good luck.
4: And, <laughs> and- with any like government issue equipment to military or law enforcement that that has the capacity for for lethal force you have a whole series of of regulations about how you use it where you store it you have to be accountable for it this is why in tv shows you see that people who get in trouble have to surrender their weapon like that kind of thing because they're accountable for that uh and this trooper either one gets a malicious level of pleasure out of intentionally like misdirecting the droid or two just doesn't care isn't being accountable isn't being careful
1: and i just i was struck by the i I can't i don't know that it can't be a coincidence that um that this specific method of detaining cassian is not a commentary on george floyd um, Eric Garner, the ways that sort of asphyxiation and choking someone as a matter, of, as a means of restraining them is so terrifying and is a way that sort of law enforcement and sort of other tools of a government can terrorize communities, especially communities of color. It struck me as such an interesting choice on in the
5: part of the writers. It's really alarming how they go immediately to deadly force. Um, because so the excessive force analysis is a totality of the circumstances test. And so in theory, it's, it's possible that an arrest could be supported by probable cause, but still unconstitutional because it was accomplished through excessive force. Um, so the court asks standing in the shoes of the, the hypothetical reasonable officer, whether the severity of force is, was balanced by the need for that force um, under the totality of the circumstances considering the severity of the crime Um, whether the person posed a threat, an immediate threat to safety of either the officers or other people, and whether the person was actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight. And that test is really hard to apply here, because on the first prong, severity of the crime, we don't know what that is, because the officer never says what Cassian is accused of being part of. He just says, you're part of it. But we don't know what it is. And as far as the other problems, yeah, he's not an immediate threat to safety. He doesn't threaten anybody. He doesn't even seem to have any weapons on him. In fact, if he did have weapons, he might have been a different outcome um, given the way he's acted in the past. And, um, you know, actively resisting or attempting to evade, yes, yeah, sure, he ran up the stairs, but that was before he was detained. Maybe grabbing the metal arm on the droid to avoid being choked, but that really seems more like self defense against unreasonable, deadly force under
0: the circumstances? It is super disturbing. And I mean, it's not the only police interaction we see in this. Uh, Clem is the other part of this in the flashback uh, where we see uh, some protesters throwing rocks at clone troopers, and which is like 17 years in the past. So we're, you know, like, three years after the Clone Wars, give or take a year. And uh, this is the, well, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's around then. Then And this is how Cassian at age 13 ends up in Juvenile Hall, is his dad is the last one left standing out in the open and is taken and is hung. I mean, very, very evil uh uh, just you know dropping the hammer on any form of civil um uh, unrest and and cassian goes and confronts the clone troopers with a pipe and ends up uh uh arrested so while well, fighting cops is a bad idea uh what happened to clem is i mean just grossly unacceptable
4: it's it's actually kind of reminiscent of what steven was saying because it it seems more like a lynching than any type of like execution that followed procedure well it's
0: you know the disturbing scene in jojo rabbit with people being hung left and right for uh and It's, it's, again, it's a totalitarian state that the best way to deal with opposition is to kill them. And uh, if people are afraid for their lives, they're just going to stay in their homes and stay out of the way. And, uh, again, that ignores the fact it will recruit people for the rebellion, um, just as it recruits uh, Marva uh, pretty quickly as well, with she's old and tired and doesn't want to take it anymore. Um, not knowing that her son was the one who was there. so (laughs) Um, And he rightly doesn't tell her. Well, let's... We have a trial scene. And the other times that we've seen trials, there's the deleted scene from Solo with a court-martial after Han crashes a TIE fighter wasn't in the film, not on screen. We have the trial of Ahsoka, which is not a normal trial. Trials aren't held in the Senate. You don't have the chancellor presiding over it. That's just, you know, there were no lawyers present. Like, it wasn't a normal trial. This, this is a trial. And even though it looks like an administrative proceeding, there's No prosecutor there's that I could tell. Definitely no defense attorney. And for what looks like traffic court with a credit card machine, that judge is handing out 72 month sentences for something that used to be a six month sentence. And even then, that looked excessive for what the arrest was for because it wasn't founded on probable cause. It was you were in the wrong place and the cop didn't like you. All bad highlights why we have Miranda and the right to counsel. Uh it, it makes you makes me sound like the, the hyper liberal ACLU from 19 the 1960s, uh wanting Miranda rights and the right to counsel. And who else wants to jump in on this to highlight uh the nefarious uh, uh so- system?
3: Josh, I'll take issue with your description of it as a trial. I don't, I don't think it was (laughs) a trial implies some kind of due process where the person has a right to be heard, to present a defense to do something meaningful. I mean, this was, this was less power than I've seen people have at like traffic court, which is, you're right, that's immediately what it looked like. It's you and a judge Generally speaking, in traffic court, it'll be you and a judge unless you decide you want a trial, in which case there's got to be some kind of a prosecuting presence. So either a prosecutor or a police officer, at least in Oregon, that's who shows up for him. Uh, But in this, Cassian was just there. He tried to you know, ask questions. He tried to offer some defense. He, as far as I could tell, was told what he was charged with. Right before they sentenced him, which isn't how it works, you have a right to, you know, see, here and confront the witnesses against you. You have a right to discovery all the prosecutions, uh, evidence they have to give you. Anybody who's ever seen my cousin Vinny, uh, I think the quote is it's called disclosure, jackass, you're entitled. Um, God, I love Marissa Tomei in that movie. Anyway, uh, so, no, I mean, none of this has the look of anything like a trial. He just shows up and he gets sent off for, what, 72 months, six years, uh, which is, I mean, a hugely astronomical sentence. Uh, the just,
4: kind of sent- oh, it, it seems as though someone was like, how do we take a trial and then turn it on its head and make the person feel as gaslit as possible. That's that's really just what it felt like. State
3: terror. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah.
3: Written and by someone seen... who lost a speeding ticket. Right, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, 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 and that's where we see the consequences of the that sort of um, anything that can indirectly impact the empire is now a class one offense. Um, that this crime that he was accused of that was never quite articulated somehow had some sort of indirect impact on the empire. And now there's these huge statutory um, minimum sentencing guidelines, um, which I, I'm not sure if anyone's worked for judges. The few judges that I've worked for with, in my experience, bristle at mandatory sentencing deadlines. They think it really, um, in in sort of the way that the, the judge in this um, scene sort of intimated that it sort of deprives them of the discretion to see certain people and and address the um, consequences in ways that will be meaningful for their um, rehabilitation or punishment and uh, is it's just really interesting insight in that judge is like I guess I
0: can do it.
4: that's actually a direct I... parallel to, to how uh, military discipline is seen by most commanders where commanders are not supposed to merely like quote the the regs essentially the regulations uh, they're supposed to interpret and apply regulations uh, that are commensurate with the situation and and what's going on and the people involved. And so, I, it's interesting to hear that judges feel the same way. That's actually really cool.
1: I can't speak for all judges, but yeah, I also can't
3: speak for all judges. But the judges I've had candid conversations with about it feel the same way. They have balked and bristled at the fact that it makes the prosecutor the most powerful person in the courtroom when it comes to sentencing and not the judge.
0: Yeah, every judge I've talked to about it's had the same reaction of, no, I don't like this. And in California, that's a byproduct of the initiative process. So yeah, it's, it's pretty gross.
2: It's interesting that, that the mere prospect of raising a defense, your own defense Got him close to getting a, an additional charge for just resisting judgment, and and this whole notion that the that speaking out against your own, not even conviction, but your own accusations, is an offense in and of itself. I mean that that says everything that you need to know about the system that Cassian has wandered into. And Jordan, you you brought up uh, very aptly that that quote. Uh, from Leia about uh, closing the empire's fist tightly, this seems to be sort of their bread and butter go to create a a system of sledgehammers that attempts to to uh, through fear or intimidation uh, dissuade folks from committing crimes It just but it doesn't even in our system it, there there's no real proof that high sentences have any effect on any level of crime and, and reducing it, whether it's uh, it's murder or larceny. And uh, I, I think it's it's a really uh, sort of aptly put uh, example to use here of just how, how sort of uh, misguided the empire's view of things is.
0: Christine, anything to add?
5: Um, no, I agree with um, Jordan 100% that this is this does not qualify as a trial or a hearing. There appears to be not only no due process, but also no Sixth Amendment rights. He doesn't get defense counsel, even though there's a mandatory six-year sentence. And in our system, if something came with mandatory prison time like that, you would be entitled to counsel. Um, As Thomas pointed out, conversely, there's also no right to self-represent. There's no right to speak on your own behalf at all, either to Present um, evidence on your own behalf, or to to be self representing, um, as uh, our courts have understood that um, he doesn't have the right to confront the shore trooper who arrested him, and he doesn't have the right to compel witnesses to come to court and give evidence in his favor. So this is this is an appalling display. The sham. <laughs> Yeah, it, and it, it
0: might be thirty minutes since he was arrested too. So, like, there there could be that factor of, as well that you know the the lady's still at the apartment hotel room. I don't know which, waiting for whatever snack that she wants that's green. So, like, there there's some very very bad things afoot. So, um, I'd fear the search after the arrest if that finds him with lots of money and other and weapons that that's only going to make things worse for him uh but that would require the empire actually doing some police work so we'll see how that plays out so we're at the end uh a lot of good stuff in this episode so quick clothing st- thoughts bethany anything to to share
4: uh this this is such an interesting episode because we we can see Cassian being pulled by fate or circumstances uh, or or the force, if you will, slowly into this fight uh, where he clearly does not understand the gravity of what is occurring after Aldani. Um, He's naive to return home. He's naive to bring someone else so quickly into his, his life, be it temporary or not. Um, he's naive to be out and about in a way that draws attention and yeah, to see him go from that to, uh, someone who's an extremely talented rebel Alliance operative and spy, uh, will be very interesting.
0: Jordan.
4: Jordan
3: i liked the episode i really did um i love all the setup i love the character actions i love i mean the stuff we haven't talked about his his talk with his mom about his mom being kind of quasi in the rebellion um lothan's assistant talking to vel about how they're gonna have to kill cassian uh all that stuff is great i i do think i'd be remiss not to point out though that while we're all the stuff we're talking about that we wanted or that we should have seen in the courtroom scene that we have in our society, uh, I have had friends who are defense attorneys who have been threatened with contempt for providing defenses for their clients and doing their job essentially. So it is stuff that we have, but it is not stuff that we are for sure a hundred percent always going to have. So don't take anything that you know you see on the kind of law and order type shows protections that that we all have don't take that for granted because it's not a it's a long jump but it's not an impossible jump from here to Cassian
0: well and law and order generally views uh, defense attorneys as the bad guys I know. so that's probably not a good example they they see the constitution as an obstacle so I know
3: but it was the first popular crime show that popped into my head
0: i'm not a fan uh
3: (laughs) i actually i actually kind of am of the originals they're terrible (laughs) they're not realistic they i mean they dismiss my profession as uh superfluous at best but it's it is good television
1: a whole john oliver episode on this by the way
3: you check i know i've seen it <laughs> i like so it good. no law and order is definitely the original law and order with sam waterston is definitely my guilty pleasure of legal television
0: fair we'll we'll save that for a law and order discussion which would only take like 10 15 years uh steven uh any closing thoughts
1: just quick thought i think i'm really excited how the um there's things from the previous two arcs that are still in play like we're still on Ferrix. We're still dealing with Aldani and Sinta, still there. So I, it's it's cool how there's these little self-contained arcs, but they still seem to be kind of cascading and, and compounding on top of each other, which is really exciting to see.
0: Christine,
5: so I like this episode. I I liked how it. Began and ended with Cyril Carn. Um, I'm really curious what he's doing. Is at the end there? Is he just looking at the Bureau of Standards fuel purity numbers, or is he onto something more substantive? Um, I love the um, the opening conversation between him and his mother. It's giving me big Norman Bates energy, and. In the best way possible um, I like the way that they used um, octagons instead of cubes at the Imperial Bureau of Standards to convey the bleakness of his future as his family has envisioned it for him and I love the nod to fashion with his um his collar that he had tailored so um, I'm interested I'm interested to see going forward how this plays out you know he's got to get worked in here somewhere either with the ISB or potentially with uh, on the other side, maybe with the, the rebels after all. So we'll see what happens.
0: Absolutely. Uh, yes. Uh, Thomas.
2: What is it that you think my collar conveys, Mother? It's just such a set of scenes between the two of them. I, I really continue to just thoroughly enjoy this show. It's sort of like, <clears throat> even though I sit down and watch it, very, very early morning before the sun comes up every Wednesday. It's like sitting down to a nice fine meal that I don't want to end at the end of the 35, 40, 45 minutes. And I am particularly uh, just marveling at the fact that despite the plot armor that Cassian has, because we know he makes it to Rogue One, we know that he finds his way formally into the Rebellion, that I still feel that he's in danger. That, that as he gets arrested and he's being choked there, I know that he's going to live. But at the same time, I'm like, how is he going to get out of this? And and that's uh that's it takes a real skill on the part of the creators to to craft a story like that. So we'll see where it takes us this week.
0: But uh, Stephen, I went. I had my say. Oh, so good. <laughs> Just making sure Did it's a like,
1: two turns. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like, sure. like, well, again, I'll talk I, for the
1: show forever.
0: <laughs> I mean, the, the the commentary that we're having about it's a brown suit, there's been lots of chat. So uh yes, yes, there. Uh I will end this with um with Cyril being in the giant cubicles. I had vibes from both Brazil and Metropolis, uh, just to highlight like this monotony of being just a little cog in a giant machine at the Bureau of Standards, so the acronym is BS, and uh, looking for the, you know, fuel purity, I mean, good for him, good for him, because that looks like the type of job you would scream hysterically after uh, probably just an hour of the work. If you thought document review was hard, buddy, brace yourself for, for the joys that are about to follow. So, so much there. So with that, uh, we have finished our analysis of this episode and my word, uh, there is so much to look forward to in the weeks ahead. Uh, on one level, uh, I, it is kind of nice to not be doing three podcasts a week right now, We're now down to two between Star Trek and uh, uh, Star Wars. So again, the promised land is here. Uh, I want to thank our patron, uh, Astro Kangaroo. And so if you want to check us out on Patreon, you can. So there's some additional content there. I actually just posted our Comic-Con panel, Law and Thunder. So that's there right now. We'll release that probably next month uh, in the main feed. Uh, but for now, we are start doing some exclusives there uh, as early releases. So with that, everyone stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky.